If you've ever been watching a movie and you get to a crucial point and a decision has to be made and after this decision, everything else in the movie is going to change. They're maybe deciding whether to kind of do chase down the bad guy or to get revenge or to rescue someone. But whatever the circumstances, everything after this decision in the movie leads to that conclusion. And so no matter what happens, that's what they do. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Mark this morning. We're in the middle of the book. We've made it halfway through. Um, we're going to be kind of in a transition this morning. And up to this point, what we've seen in the book of Mark is Jesus kind of revealing himself over and over and over again um, to answer the question, who is Jesus? That's what he's been trying to show us again and again and again and again. And we see this often with the disciples kind of not quite understanding who he really is. Um, and this morning, we're going to see a transition in our first verse, and it's going to be chapter 8, um, verse 27. You can go ahead and start turning there. We won't read it yet, but it's page 895 in the Pew Bible in front of you, or if you're using the Version Bible app, it'll already be there for you. Um, but in verse 27, we have this phrase. Um, it's in the middle. It says, in, on the road, in our translation, in most of your translations, it'll say, on the way. And so this actually, yes, it does apply to Jesus, just he's on the way walking with the disciples in that moment. But in the book of Mark, this is also a transition of the entire book. There's a shift here. And so from this point forward, he is on the way to his destination. A decision has been made, and we're going to see that play out this morning. But think of this morning as, what we're rather going to go to is um, Caesarea Philippi. So think of that as the northernmost point that Jesus goes in his ministry. And from this point forward, everything that happens in the next few chapters, he's going immediately south down to Jerusalem. And so the decision has been made that he is on his way to Jerusalem. And that's what we're seeing. That's the shift that we see happening this morning. And so the question that he's answering in this second half of the book, of what we're going to see in the next few weeks, is what kind of Messiah is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? So he's going to kind of say, hey, you, now you know who I am. What, is it, what does it really look like? What am I really going to accomplish? And what does it mean to follow me? And so let's read that together in Mark chapter 8. Um, we're going to read verse 27 through uh, chap- verse 1 of chapter 9. And it says this, Jesus without, went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? 
What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is Jesus clarifying his mission. And the way that he does that is he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And so he starts by asking the disciples, right, who do people think he is, the people around him? He wanted to find out, right, what people were saying about him. What's the word on the street? What are people talking about? And I think he probably already knew what the answers to these questions were going to be, but he wanted to confirm that people didn't quite understand why he was coming. And remember, like we just said, up to this point, the question is, who is Jesus? And so it's kind of summarizing all of those things. Who do they think Jesus really is? And so the response is to tell him he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, or he's one of the prophets. Now, if that sounds familiar and you've been following along with us, it is because we've heard these answers before. Um, In chapter 6, when they talk to Herod, like Herod's trying to figure out who Jesus is, And they give the exact same answers. He's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, maybe he's one of the prophets. And so that's what we see, the exact same answers. And these these verses help us to see that all of the people that they think Jesus is were just a person to prepare for the Messiah. We have verses in the Old Testament about a voice crying out in the wilderness, which connects to John the Baptist. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah. We have Elijah, who was also prophesied to come back when the Messiah was about to arrive on the scene. Um, You can see that in Malachi 4, 5. It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then we have all the prophets who are kind of precursors to the Messiah, who are proclaiming God's word, who are warning people, who are encouraging people to follow him and tell him that he is coming. So the people overall have some idea that Jesus is significant. There is something different about him than there are with normal people. But they, and they've connected to the scriptures and possibly to the Messiah in some way, but they just kind of include him in the list of people who are preparing for the Messiah to come. They failed to understand that he's really coming to fulfill those prophecies, to fulfill the mission of the Messiah, not just to prepare for the Messiah to come as the role of the anointed one who will bring salvation. And then he turns it on the disciples, right? Not just who does other people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And so what he's doing is trying to clarify this. If we, you remember last week when we talked about Jesus kind of confronting the disciples, they still don't quite understand who Jesus is. He does some miracles in front of them, and then they are really confused <clears throat> about what he's trying to ask them when he asks them about Um, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They think he's talking about actual bread, but he's not. He's talking about spiritual teaching, and so they're still not quite sure. And so what Jesus wants to do in this moment is to say, look, what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to teach you, what I'm about to reveal about my mission is going to change everything. Not just for me, Jesus would say, but for you, and coincidentally, for all of us. We're all here because of this decision. Right, so he wants to make crystal clear that the disciples understand who he really is in this moment. And so that's what he's trying to do them, to, to get them to see is everything is about to change, so you need to really understand who I am. And Peter answers first, and if you've read through some of the other Gospels, this is not a surprise to you. 
Um, he usually is someone who speaks first or jumps the gun or is the first one to do something. This is his first time to do it in Mark, so he's kind of waited halfway through to kind of jump out there. Um, but you will see him in the rest of the book kind of be the first one out there. And Peter answers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. So we see at some level the disciples understand that Jesus is the one who has been chosen and anointed by God to come and to rescue and to restore the Israelites, right? This is a good answer. This is the answer we would hope for if we were following along or looking back, like, I hope they say he's the Messiah, and they do. Um, so at some level, they understand some of what he is, but they seem to have missed this a lot up to this point. And so after these two questions, I think we're in a good place. Right? Step one is good. They understand, disciples understand that he is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God to save them. It feels like we're making progress, right? Because up to this point, they haven't been able to really give that answer. But next, we're going to see step two, where Jesus begins to reveal how he's going to accomplish the mission of the Messiah, of what it's going to look like and what that means for his followers, so what we see next is that Jesus must die so that we can live. So in verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them what being the Messiah is actually going to look like. Um, he needed to clarify because at this point, the understanding of the Messiah was that he would be a um, political or a military ruler who would come and he would rule in power and he would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel. And so even though I think the disciples said he is the Messiah, what they're expecting is someone to come in power with authority, with maybe an army or all of these things to overturn everything that's happening to them. And so that, I think they're still expecting that. And that's going to be made clear, I think, in the responses that we see from from Peter. And so they're visioning when they say Messiah, someone who comes in strength and in power and in might, who would be strong enough to overcome them. And just for reference, just as we're working through this section, um, Jesus is going to do the same thing three times in this. So he's about to make some predictions about what's going to happen to him and his death and what that's going to look like. So in this section, there's going to be three of those. This is the first one, and after each one of those, he's going to clarify something about what it means to follow him. So we'll see that three times, so just be looking for that as we go through. And so Jesus tells them, look, it's going to be a little different than what you've expected. He tells them it is necessary for him to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise after three days. These four things are necessary to complete his mission. And notice he says it's necessary, meaning this must happen. He doesn't say it's going to happen. I have a good idea, a hunch that this might be where we're headed, um, that we might be headed that way. He says he must, it must happen. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. And all of these things are written about the Messiah in the Scriptures. And Jesus has to do all of them to fulfill the Scriptures. He must suffer. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah would be oppressed. He would be afflicted. He would be despised. He would be a man of suffering who would bear our sickness and our pain. In Psalm 22, it says they will mock him and they will pierce his hands and his feet. In Isaiah 50, it tells us the Messiah will be spit on and struck in the face. 
He must suffer because the scriptures say the Messiah must suffer and the word of God cannot be broken. He must be rejected. In Psalm 118, we have the verse that says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This verse is repeated by Jesus himself later in chapter 12 and then by Peter, that Jesus is the cornerstone who was rejected. So he must be rejected because it is written in the scriptures. He must be killed. In Isaiah 53, we see not just that he is going to suffer, but that he would be killed like a lamb to the slaughter, that he would be cut off from the land of the living. He will be an offering for guilt, and our iniquity will be laid on him. Right, Which is another reason he must die. Our sins had to be paid for. The penalty for sin is death both physical and spiritual death, and that needed to be paid. And so if Jesus doesn't come, all of that lies on us. We will pay the penalty for our sins. We will die, both physically and spiritually, eternally separated from God. And so Jesus must come so that we can live. He has to give his life as a sacrifice for us to pay that penalty so that we don't have to pay it on our own that through him we can have life, that his righteousness stands in our place and we can be seen as righteous before God. He must die. Because if he doesn't have to die, and this has always been an interesting thought to me, that if Jesus doesn't have to die for us to have life, for us to have salvation, to us to spend eternity in God, then God is not who the Bible says he is. Because if there was any other way for us to be saved, to have salvation, then God sending Jesus to die for us was not necessary. And sending somebody to die when it's not necessary isn't a loving, gracious thing to do. Right? So if there was any other way, God should have done that. But I think this shows us in the scriptures, there was no other way because God is loving, he is gracious, he does care for us, he does offer salvation, and in that, he sent Jesus to die for us. He must die so that we can live. It has to happen. There's no other way to get there, which is what we're going to see as we continue to go through. So he must be killed for the salvation of all mankind. But not just be killed, he must rise again. He must rise, right? Because if you come and you say, hey, I'm dying to overcome sin and death, that's one thing. Like, I could say that, um, and you probably wouldn't believe me because, well, I hope you wouldn't believe me because of what we're teaching from the Bible. But if I did, and then I died, and that was it, and I never came back, you would be like, well, how do we know he overcame death because now he's dead just like everybody else, right? But he must rise to prove that he actually overcame death and overcame sin, Because when you rise again, you're saying, look, death, it tried. It lasted a little while, but then I overcame it, and now I'm back to life again, right? It's overcoming death, and so he must rise again to prove that. So they are scripture, because the scriptures cannot be broken and our salvation can be secure. We can't doubt the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. It is essential for salvation as our belief as Christians, Right? We have to hold to this. 
And so Jesus clarifies what's about to happen to him, what he's going to do. He's going to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed. They don't sound like a conquering king or a military leader. It's very different than what the, the disciples were expecting. And we see that in Peter's response. Right? Jesus takes him, Peter takes Jesus aside and he's, he doesn't go like, uh, hey Jesus, I know maybe you feel like this is what's going to happen, but I don't think we should share those kind of things in front of the group. Right? Maybe just you and I should talk about them and then we can decide if we're going to share with everybody else. No, that's not what Peter does. Peter says Peter rebukes him. So this word for rebuke is actually the same word we've seen in the first parts of Mark when Jesus is casting out demons and rebuking them. So this is a strong, powerful word. So Peter's like, no, 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 this is not happening. We are not doing this. We are not going down this road. And Jesus gives a counter-rebuke, right? Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus is like, no, 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 Peter, you can't rebuke me, right? You're not correcting me. I am not in the wrong. You are actually the one in the wrong. And he says, right, Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is a very strong rebuke, right? If we say that to somebody, it is a very strong statement. But what does that really mean when he says that? Is he saying that Satan is working through Peter, that maybe Peter is possessed in some way? Um, I don't think that's what it means. What he's saying is what Peter is trying to do, Peter's view of this, Peter rebuking Jesus, is basically saying he is opposed to what Jesus is saying must happen, to the mission of Jesus. And so Peter telling Jesus that he doesn't really need to die, that these things don't need to happen, is exactly what Satan tried to do when he tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, right? There's a shortcut. There's another way. There's another way that this can be accomplished. You don't need to do all of those things. And so Jesus is showing that anything that goes in opposition to God and his plan is actually aligned with his enemy, Satan. And I know it's, it's hard to think about it that way, and I don't when I thought about it this week, I really don't like to think about it that way, that if I'm doing something opposed to God and what he wants for me and his plan for me and what the scriptures say, then I'm actually aligned with his enemy. Right? He says, human concerns and temptations are, are, are entering your mind and those always derail the purpose or the calling or the mission of God in our lives. And so I wondered this morning if we respond to the call of Je to follow Jesus just like Peter. Do we rebuke Jesus and say, no, 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 that's not happening? Or even to say, Jesus didn't die for me? And I know that sounds like a silly thing for a pastor to say to a group of people in his church. But I think often we think of Jesus in our own terms. We may say things like, he's my friend, he's my comforter, he's my provider. He's my help. And all of those things are true. But he's also the one who demands my life. He demands more of me. He's just not my friend. He's not just my comforter. He's not just my help. He can't just be my teacher. He must have my allegiance. He must have my trust. Anything less than that is missing it. It's essentially saying what Peter is saying. Yeah, I know you might do all of those things, but let's just stay over here in like the guy who multiplies bread and casts out demons. Let's just stay there. Let's not go to the one who dies and then calls me to also die, which is what Jesus teaches them next. 
He teaches them that we must die so that we can live. And if you look at verse 34, notice that Jesus expands the audience. He's been talking to the disciples, and then in verse 34, it very intentionally says, and then he brings in the crowd. Meaning that he's not just clarifying this for the disciples to say, okay, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, but let me tell you what you need to do to be able to follow me. And it's only for the twelve. It's only for the inner circle. No, he brings in the crowd to say, it's for anyone who would follow me. Not just the inner circle, not just the few, not just the professional Christians or the professional followers. This is a call for everyone. Everyone who wishes to follow Jesus, this is what it needs to look like. And that's what he clarifies. And he starts with a summary. Right? He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So first we have to deny ourselves. Now this isn't just denying temporary pleasures or desires like having extra dessert or watching that one more episode before you go to sleep at night. No, this is saying I deny everything. All my wants, all my desires, everything I think I can achieve on my own, I give all of it up. And the way that we know that is because the next thing he says is actually an escalation of just denying yourself, right? And that's to take up your cross. Now, the cross was an instrument of death. It was designed to kill someone in such a way to be so excruciating and so humiliating that anybody who saw it would say, whatever that guy did, I'm going to make sure that I never even get close to doing that. Right? That's what he's talking about when he's talking about taking your cross, an instrument of death and humiliation. <clears throat> and so Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, picks up this concept as a symbol of what it must look like to follow him. Right? It wasn't just denying yourself a few little things. It wasn't just a little bit of sacrifice, giving up some of your time or some of your money or enduring a little suffering. Right? The call is to die. To follow Jesus is a call to die. To die to self on a daily basis. And then he calls them to follow me. Right, Not just to die and do nothing or make a sacrifice for no reason. The reason we must die or that our desires must die is so that they can be replaced with new desires. A desire to follow, to obey, and to trust in Jesus. Our new lives are filled with purpose, which is following Christ. And you may think about it and say, it seems like maybe a bad exchange because I'm really giving up everything that I ever wanted in my life, right? All my, th- all my desires, all my wants, maybe even my career path, maybe what my family will look like. I'm giving up all of those things just to follow Christ. I'm giving up everything. And you might be tempted to say, well, that doesn't seem like a good deal because it seems like I'm giving up an awful lot. I'm giving up everything for him. But remember, he's also given up everything for you, right? We're a little ahead of the game just because we're further along in history, but we know what's going to happen to Jesus, that all of these things are going to come true. He is going to die for us so that we can have life. And he sacrificed himself willingly for you. 
And we should also remember that following Christ is actually not designed to be a sad life or a life without joy or with blessing. Because the Bible actually tells us that Jesus wants to give us the desires of our hearts. He wants to give you what you want. But what happens as you begin to follow him and you begin to deny yourself and to take up your cross and you follow him and you read the scriptures and you spend time in prayer and you spend time in maybe fasting and meditation and some of the other things that we're talking about in our spiritual disciplines class, that slowly over time, those desires that you gave up at the beginning all of a sudden get replaced with new desires and new things and new wants that are better and more fulfilling and longer lasting than the things we thought we wanted in the beginning. And so the more we follow Christ, the more our desires change, which means they're aligned with him. And when he gives them to us, we find a sense of fulfillment, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission that our lives are changed, that we have actually made a good deal, even though at the beginning it may not seem like it, right? That we are giving up things for Christ, and it is good for us. And then he expands on this summary statement with the next four verses. Um, And all the next four verses actually start with the word for. Um, They may not in your translation. Some people leave out the four um, in one of the verses, but they all start with the same. So he's like four, 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 four. So he does this one at a time. So let's look through those and what they mean because he's expanding on this. So in verse 35, we must lose our life to save it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Basically saying the more we try to save ourselves, The more we try to earn our way to eternal life and God's favor, the further away we get. Which is the opposite of what we think, right? We think to earn God's favor, to make him notice me, to make him bless me, to make him be kind to me, I need to do more, I need to be better. But all the things that we try to do, it's never enough. But if we lose our lives, if we give up our wants, our desires for the sake of following Christ, then we can save our lives, right? For the gospel, not just to deny ourselves, sort of to punish ourselves of all these things we're not supposed to do, but for the good news of what Jesus has done for us and for others. Then we see in verse 36, right? Getting everything in the world will not save us. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? If you gain all the riches in the world, if you give Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos a run for their money, right, to make more money than them, it still wouldn't amount to anything, right? When those guys die, it's over. They don't get to take that with them afterwards. So what this is really saying is the value of following Jesus is worth more than anything on this planet. It's worth more than anything. No amount of money, no amount of things, no amount of uh, great reputation is worth more than following Christ. It has more value than anything. So trading your earthly life for eternity with God is a trade that is worth it. Then in verse 37, there's nothing we can exchange for our life. He says, for what can anyone give in exchange for his life? What do you have to bargain for your life? What is it worth? 
What do you have that God would look at it and say, okay, that looks pretty good. Now you're saved. You can come into heaven on your own. You've paid the cost. Your sins are covered. The answer is nothing. We have nothing that does that. When we look at the holiness and the purity and the perfection of God, we all fall short. We all miss the mark. We are all found lacking. We have nothing to bring to the table. And then verse 38, being ashamed of Jesus results in him being ashamed of us. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So if you're ashamed of Jesus, if you're ashamed of what he's done for you, then when he returns, he'll be ashamed of you. But what does this mean, really? Right, Because think about it this way. When you're ashamed of someone, you don't really want to be seen with them. You don't want people to know that you're friends or they're part of your family. You don't want to be identified with them to say, oh yeah, those guys are together. Right, Because you're ashamed, you're embarrassed, You don't want people to know that. You don't want anything to do with them. So I think that's the concept he's talking about is, are you ashamed to be with Jesus? Are you embarrassed to be identified with him? Do you not want people to know that the two of you go together? Right? I don't want to be identified with Jesus, which I think at some level means you've rejected him. Right? You said, this Jesus guy, I don't want anything to do with that. And so what he's saying is, if you're ashamed of him, if you refuse to acknowledge who he is, his true identity, and to sacrifice, and to give your life to trust in him, then you're not going to gain any of the things that we just saw, right? You don't get to gain eternal life. You don't get to overcome some of the things of this world because you were ashamed. You didn't want to be a part of what Jesus was doing. But if you do... Identify with Christ and give your life and sacrifice and love him and follow him and seek him. Then he won't be ashamed of you. He'll be identified with you. You will go with him to be in heaven forever. So that's what he's talking about. The call to Jesus is a call to die, to sacrifice ourselves. And what challenged me from the text this week when I read through this was what Jesus is asking for sounds hard, right? This doesn't sound like an easy thing to do, to deny myself, to give up everything, to follow him, to sacrifice him, to take up my cross. It sounds like a hard thing to do. It's hard to deny my selfish desires because in the moment, they don't seem selfish. They seem pretty reasonable, right? If they didn't, I wouldn't do them. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to skip reading my Bible. It's okay to not interject into a conversation when I see an opening to share the gospel. But what I think Jesus really wants us to see from this text is that living the Christian life should be hard, and the, the, the challenging thought that came after that was, if I think, if we think living the Christian life is easy, then maybe we're not doing it right. 
Because this doesn't sound easy to me. It sounds challenging. It sounds difficult. Especially in light of my life. That giving everything up should be hard. There should be a tension between what's happening in the world and what I want to do and what Christ has called me to do. And I should feel that on a daily basis. This tension between not dismiss it or just keep doing what I want and then every once in a while I say, oh, I'll just do better now. Right? But we should feel it on a daily basis because the world is opposed to what Christ is doing. To live that out in the midst of the culture that we live in right, should be difficult. It's difficult to speak up, to say what the Scripture says, even in the midst of other things. So we should, it should be hard, but in order to live for Christ, we must die. We must die to our own wants, the things that I want, the things that I think will fulfill me, the things that I think will make me happy. I have to let them go. To putting ourselves at the center of our lives, we must die to that, to say we are the center of the universe. We deserve everything that we think we deserve. Right, whatever that may be, a, a job, blessings, whatever it might be. We also should put to death our fears and our doubts. Right? Because if I'm honest, when I look at my life, it's really my fear that keeps me from doing the things that God calls me to do. What is this person going to say about me? What are they going to think if they don't believe? Are they going to think that I'm crazy, that I don't know what I'm talking about? Why is this guy trusting in a book that was written like more than 2,000 years ago? Doesn't he know those things aren't relevant anymore? Right? What do people think? And it's my fear of what's going to happen if God's really going to come through that sometimes limits me. We also need to die to our shame or our embarrassment of being identified with Christ, of saying, I'm with Jesus unapologetically and doing so to our friends and our family and the culture around us. Right? If we truly believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to have life, actually the only way to having your best life. And I know somebody else used that phrase, so I don't like to use it, but yes, that's how to get there. Then we should want to tell people, we should want to be identified with it. We should be willing to pay the price, the sacrifice and the cost that comes with that, of what Jesus is calling us to do. We should do that. And just to wrap everything up this morning, sometimes it's better to get somebody who's uh, smarter and better at writing than you are to kind of succinctly describe everything. So this is a, a quote from uh, Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And this, is, this quote kind of sums up what we're talking about. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this for us just to kind of let this sink in. But this is what Jesus is calling us to this morning. This is what it means to follow him. Not just to limit what we can do or to take everything from us, but because he has already died to give us everything. So listen to this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is to the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. 
The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. We have life through Christ when we give up everything to follow him. We pray with me this morning. God, we come before you. We thank you that you, you did see send your son for us that you do challenge us with your word, that sometimes even though it may be hard, it may seem difficult, it may seem like more than we can do, sometimes or often I'm convinced that's the entire point. Right? If we could do it on our own, in our own power, then you would be unnecessary. Right? But as we saw this morning, Jesus must come. He must suffer he must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again because that is the only way to deal with the problem of sin, of missing the mark of Jesus and God's holiness. To say we are lacking, that we need something else, that we can't do it on our own, and it's only through Christ's sacrifice of coming to the earth and living a perfect life and sacrificing in our place, and as we trust in him, as we give our lives over to him, that we actually have true life. So the, the, I pray this morning that you would help us to, to be focused, to be intentional, to be disciplined in seeking you, of giving things over to you of sacrificing on a daily basis, not just to eliminate things or to give up what we want just for the sake of giving them up, but to follow you. Because following you, living for you, is better than anything else the world has to offer. The world has nothing of more value than following Christ. So help us to see that clearly, to see the, the folly and the silliness of some of the things that we think are important but to trust in you, to follow you, and to trust that what you are giving us is better than all of that. And not only that, that you will be with us, you will give us the strength, you will give us the power, you will give us your spirit to be able to help us, enable us to live the life you are calling us to. We are not on our own in trying to do that, but you are with us. So God, help us this week to come and to die to give up our wants and our desires for you because you are the only one who saves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.